Perhaps the most memorable encounter I've had with anyone. With subscriptions, the onus now shifts from the merchant to the customer. So the customer is now deemed satisfied with that product or service unless they cancel. And so that recurring revenue, that predictable revenue that your subscription business can build over time is super, super powerful. Welcome to the Own Your Commerce podcast, where leading experts, brands, and innovators reveal strategies for e-commerce growth. I'm your host, Jay Myers, and this show is brought to you by Bold Commerce. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Own Your Commerce. I'm really excited for today because I am super passionate about subscriptions, and I have another person here with me who is also passionate about subscriptions. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I have Adam Leventer. He is, I'm going to give you a quick background on him. He's an entrepreneur. He's a published author, which I've read his book. He's a podcaster. I've been on his podcast. We go way back, apparently. He's the CEO of a company called Scriberbase, which is a company focused on launching and scaling and optimizing subscription businesses, which we're going to get into a little bit in the show. He's widely regarded as a subscription expert. He's written a book called The Subscription Boom, which I actually have on my desk as we're recording this podcast. He's a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He's an advisor to Bain & Company. Oh, and also fun fact, which we just talked about before we jumped on air here, is we're both speaking at SubSummit in a couple of weeks. And we haven't met in person, so that'll be the first time we physically meet. We're both doing a presentation. His keynote is called How to Build a Billion Dollar Subscription Business. So I'm going to hopefully pick his brain a little bit on that and maybe pull some nuggets <laughs> pull some nuggets out. But without further ado, let's dive into it. Adam, thank you so much for coming on our show. Jay, it's great to be here. Can you give us a little bit of background Who are you and how did you end up in this world of subscription? Sure. So indirectly is the answer. I was an entrepreneur of (laughs) a founder operator of a couponing business, which I started back in 2011. And what I like to tell people is we rode the Groupon wave up and then back down again. Uh, This couponing world (laughs) was crazy and intense competition, change in business fundamentals, lots of things going on. And ultimately ended up selling the business in 2018. But what was different about our business model in the daily deals and couponing space is that we were a coupon aggregator. So instead of knocking on doors of merchants the way Groupon would do it, we were gating coupons behind a paywall and charging customers a monthly membership fee in order to access you know, hundreds of thousands of daily discounts at any given time. So effectively, we were running a subscription model. Mm -hmm. We had a digital spin on the old entertainment book, if you will. You know, our members could use many, many coupons if they wanted to as part of their membership, or they could be lazy and only use one coupon. The price of the membership was still the same. So after selling that business, you know, without any clarity as to what I was going to do next, I found it interesting what was happening in the subscription space. You know, Dollar Shave Club was sold for a billion dollars in 2016. There was lots of momentum around subscription boxes. And I had inbound just other folks in my network asking me questions about, you know, how do they do subscription with this product or that service? And so I started consulting and I started Scriberbase and admittedly a few failed positionings of sort of trying to be all things to all people, repackaging my software for my previous business under Scriberbase and selling it. So that totally flopped. Consulting around logistics and sort of 3PL stuff, that didn't work. But what was working, I should say, was just the insights and expertise that we had 
in terms of helping other brands to launch and scale their subscription model. And so that's where we're at today. When did you launch that subscriber base? Sorry, if you said that, I missed that. Yeah, it was about 2018. 2018. Okay. You know, in the world of subscription, these dates matter because subscriptions in 20, well, you just kind of summarized it too, but like 2016, 2017 versus subscriptions now are very different and the way people approach it. So it's a small nuance, but that makes a difference. And 2018, that was still quite ahead of when general commerce brands were considering the subscription business model. I imagine you would spend a lot of your time not working with them, but also convincing them that it was a good model to go with, I would correct? Yeah, I think so. You know, subscriptions were still new and novel. I mean, look, this model has been around for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. This model goes way, way back, starting with magazines and media and publications, you know, a few hundred years ago. The first subscription box of its kind was 1926, started by a guy named Harry Sherman, Book of the Month Club, for those that (laughs) may or not be familiar with that. It's still in existence, by the way you know, all the way to clubs and, you know, the BMG access models of the world. It's been around. It's just that I think in 2012, there was this new sort of online craziness built on the launch of brands like Birchbox and DSC and others who took advantage of a low cost CPC and CPM environment on Facebook to do customer acquisition and and had scaled that way. So yeah, 2018, things were still relatively new and novel, but at the same time, you also had platforms that weren't as mature and couldn't necessarily mm. support subscription models the same way they do today. So if you think back, you know, Shopify didn't really have this robust solution to do subscription billing. There was CrateJoy, but CrateJoy had limitations. Folks were running into all kinds of problems related to payment processing and recurring billing. So a lot has changed between 2018 and now. So why are you so passionate about subscription and membership? Well, I make the case in the book that I believe that this is the future of commerce. So it's really Mm -hmm. hard to make a business work by selling something once. In order Mm -hmm. to build real traction in your business, you've got to sell something several times over. And so the question becomes, you know, how does one do that? Well, Mm -hmm. if you're a traditional business, you have to go to great efforts to remarket to, retarget to, and eventually attract that repeat purchase, that repeat buyer back into your store, back onto your website, back to that point of sale. With subscriptions, the onus now shifts from the merchant to the customer. So the customer is now deemed satisfied with that product or service unless they cancel. And so that recurring revenue, that predictable revenue that your subscription business can build over time is super, super powerful in terms of building you know, sustainable cash flows, understanding your, your analytics and making decisions based on that. And ultimately, building loyalty over time. So I really do believe that this is how you build a more sustainable business. And this is how you capture real enterprise value. Every time I have someone who is in the subscription space, I always ask them that exact question. And I've every single time I've got a different answer. And it's I find it fascinating. Yours makes a ton of sense because repeat purchase rate is a metric that e-commerce brands track and subscription is a way to enable that and automate it. I've heard another answer often that subscriptions are, and this was from Patrick Campbell, he was on recently from ProfitWell. He said, Mm -hmm. subscriptions are the only transaction where relationship is baked into the transaction. It's the only commerce transaction where relationship is baked into it, which I love. Another reason I've got is because it's a commerce transaction experience that when done properly benefits 
the customer and the brand. So you mentioned like the recurring revenue is good for the brand and predictable. And there's a ton of benefits around that automating repeat customers. But when it's done right for the customer, they should get a better experience because that brand has better data on them. They're more valuable to the brand so they can spend more to acquire them, spend more to keep them. Ideally, it's always better being a member somewhere than just being a customer. You get treated better. So it's interesting. There's so many reasons, different ones I hear as to the benefits of the model. So I tend to agree with you that it is the, I would say, a model of the future. What's interesting though is right now, it actually represents 3% of total retail, of commerce retail, which is, I think it's, even though it feels like it's got a lot of traction, it's still fairly early. And I think we're seeing that in the marketplace right now with all these different announcements and companies trying it, which I want to get into in a little bit. But before we get into that, you talked a little bit about what it is. What's the service you offer to companies with Scriberbase? Well, typically companies are looking at use cases, whether it is Dollar Shave Club, or Harry's, or Birchbox, or Ipsy, or, you know, HelloFresh, or whatever. You know, that tangible direct-to-consumer product subscription company, or they're looking at Amazon Prime, for example, and taking a look at that loyalty program and saying, you know, we want to do that. Mm. Or they have a service that they're thinking about getting behind a paywall and offering it on some sort of subscription or membership access model. And, you know, generally speaking, you pointed it out, Jay, that it does still represent a very small percentage of the market, which is, you know, on one hand, not great, but at the same time represents huge upside in terms mm-hmm. of innovation around your business, around your business model. And so typically what we see with our clients is a lack of understanding and a lack of expertise or capabilities internally that lead to them coming to us and knocking on our door and saying, we need help. We know we have the potential to create something innovative here. We know about the fundamentals of a subscription business and why it's attractive to us as a business. We just don't know how to execute. So they typically mm-hmm. come to us and they retain us to not only do you know, the strategic planning and map out the opportunity, but to come up with the plan as to how to build and how to execute and how to stand up that business. So we consider ourselves, you know, some call us consultants. We really consider ourselves business builders because ultimately I'm bringing my sort of background as an operator to the table and doing more than just creating a strategy for this brand. We're actually launching a business. Are there any big wins you can share or client success stories? I mean, we've had a lot of big wins. And so by default, you know, our clients have had big wins. And so by default, we have two. We built businesses in a variety of sectors, media, legal, retail, D2C, e-commerce, SaaS, even nonprofit. So we're proud of that because we're somewhat industry agnostic. We bring our frameworks, our principles, our expertise, our partners, our resources to the table. That separates us from other folks trying to do what we do. So Mm. consider ourselves quite a unique value proposition for companies wanting to get into this space and to scale fast. So you've been, Scriberbase is around close to five years old, over just mm-hmm. over four years old. Mm-hmm. Even in that time, there's been trends and changes happening in the subscription space. What are some of the macro high-level trends you're seeing in the market with subscriptions? There's so many, some good, some bad. First, let me highlight a lot of the more exciting trends that we're watching and we're paying attention to. The first is what we call content as a service. So we're seeing content creators gating their expertise behind a paywall. You know, folks will be familiar with masterclasses or online courses. Mm. There are platforms that support this type of model like Substack and Patreon. 
These are platforms that are enabling the management and monetization of this model. So we're mm-hmm. very excited to watch smaller trainers, consultants, leadership coaches, podcasters, content creators, artists, musicians start to gate their expertise behind a paywall. Somewhat related is the ed tech explosion that we've seen across these MOOCs or, or massive open online courses. So the Udemy's, the Udacity's, the Coursera's of the world. And it's the same model just related to education and ed tech. That's not going away. Mm. Certainly the, the pandemic has accelerated this movement from in-person learning to digital learning. Of course, as we go back to in-person, a lot more physical education is going to happen. A lot of folks are going to go back into the classroom. But at the same time, you know, nearly 2 billion people have become accustomed to learning online. And a lot of that is not going away. You then have you know, media going direct, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, podcasters in general, you have CNN Plus, which is now defunct, but still a use case worth highlighting because it does represent this attempt from media to go direct and build that relationship with the consumer and avoid that typical ad model that most of those, those media companies and properties are, are associated with. Another thing that I think is pretty unique and exciting to watch is this idea of building a community in order to support your membership model or in order to build loyalty. So mm-hmm. if you think about you know, the power of the WeWork model or the Peloton model, and notwithstanding what we've seen in the stock markets, and I'm not talking about the stock prices of these companies, let me be clear. The stock is not the company and the company is not the stock. Correct. So what I am going to highlight is that you know, these are still very innovative, very powerful companies running subscription models. In the case of WeWork, they're running a membership to gain access to workspace. In the case mm-hmm. of Peloton, they're selling access to fitness classes online or, or on your phone after you purchase a bike. So you know, these are companies that I think have nailed the community piece really, really well because the value of these brands is in that community. You know, people stick around with Peloton and the numbers are certainly representative of that because they value competing against their friends, against their family members. They love tracking, you know, data and and jumping onto a Peloton class with their neighbor next door. That's a very cool thing. You also have, you know, co-working space <laughs> that existed way before WeWork in the case of Regis. You know, Regis went through bankruptcy and then back out again. WeWork has also had its challenges, but the power of the WeWork brand does lie in the community. You know, people value that experience of working with other like-minded folks in that co-working environment. That's what separates a WeWork to a Regis. So I think building community is, is super, super important. And brands that understand that I think are going to separate themselves from the competition. Yeah, actually, I want to read a quote from your book, which I guess is also, it's a, originally a quote from Kevin Kelly, which I love this as well too. But so this is the quote, Kevin Kelly's basic premise is that to be a successful creator, you don't need to start with millions of dollars or acquire millions of customers, clients, or followers. Whether you are a craftsman, photographer, musician, designer, author, animator, app maker, entrepreneur or inventor, you only need 1,000 true fans. A true fan is someone who is loyal to your brand, your company, and your craft. Someone who will buy anything you produce. These are people who will drive miles to see you sing, buy your hardcover, your paperback, your audio version of your book, listen to your podcast, purchase the new organic soap you sell from your website. Not only that, they will empathetically share their admiration for your work with their friends, colleagues, and coworkers. And I think this is one of the biggest growth strategies that brands who are utilizing it well are growing 
exponentially. And brands that don't understand this, the value of having that tight community and it is their advocates or their ambassadors and leveraging it, they struggle with just paid acquisition and everything else and trying every other way. But once brands that get this right, they almost don't even need any of that other marketing channels. Their customers are their marketing channels. Well, let's break that down and understand why. So you hit the nail on the head. So companies that understand this really have a unique leg up on the competition because they treat their customers as another marketing channel. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's email or Facebook or Instagram or paid media or earned media or Google ads or whatever, add on your existing customer base as that next acquisition channel because they are, and they certainly have the potential to be. So your customers can become marketing organisms for your brand. And if you have a serious value proposition, it's important that you leverage that because as customers begin to talk about their experience with your product or your service and share that experience with their friends or their coworkers, that can be a powerful thing for your metrics because you know that drives organic traffic and ultimately organic signups. And what happens then? Well, you have organic customer acquisition with a zero customer acquisition cost associated with mm-hmm. enrolling those customers. So you potentially have a powerful acquisition channel that is driving free traffic to your site, to your offer, to your product, to your service. If you can wrap your head around treating your customers like royalty and getting them to spread the word about what you're doing as a business. And I think Dollar Shave Club got this right. You know, people were not talking about the experience of going to a CVS or if you're in Canada, Shoppers Drug Mart to buy razors. That was not something people were talking about before Dollar Shave Mm -hmm. Club. But Dollar Shave Club understood that if they could build a unique value proposition, a unique D2C service around razors and create some sort of word of mouth or virality around that message, they would be able to create that sticky, organic customer acquisition, loyalty, word of mouth, whatever, because customers would begin to talk about that experience with their friends. And certainly they did. You know, after that YouTube video launched, DSC had tens of thousands of signups within 24 hours or something like that. That is really inexpensive customer acquisition. Yeah. Well, and it's so fun fact, the talk I'm doing at SubSummit is titled The Subscription Death Curve. And it's focused around any subscription business that doesn't understand this concept eventually will hit what is a flatline. And I just call it a death curve, but it's basically you flatline, you're churning the same amount of customers each month as you can pay to acquire. Mm-hmm. And that might happen at a thousand customers. It might happen at a million customers, but there's going to get to a point where whatever your churn is, you can only acquire so many more and you just, you flatline. And I look in the, sadly, but I look at a lot of our brands using like our bold subscriptions and a lot of them are in that exact flatline. Some of them aren't though. A lot of them are growing exponentially and they have great growth curves, but probably the majority are in that flatline and they haven't figured out this concept of how to leverage their existing customers. But if you talk to any social media platform, like they'll know exactly what their viral coefficient is, what every customer that signs on, how many they have to refer, how many they lose. And there's a viral coefficient where if each customer refers X amount more, then they escape that flatline. I heard an interesting quote the other day that I love. And it's when you get a subscriber, you don't have a customer, you have a lead. 
and I think we don't treat them as leads enough. We treat them as that's a sale. I got a customer. I got a subscriber. Now I sit back and I track churn and I track LTV and whatever else. When you have a customer, when that customer subscribes, you actually should think of it as that's a lead. And now your job is to really sell them on it, to educate them on the product, educate them on your company, the value of the product, everything from how it's made and is it organic and do you donate to different charities and is it made ethically? Is it whatever else? And then educate them on all the benefits of it. Then once you actually get a customer, you can turn them into an ambassador that that will, like you said, help refer people. But we sometimes go straight to you subscribe and then right there is a, hey, share with your friends to give them 10% off. But it's like skipping so much. Like they're not actually a customer yet. They're a lead at that point. And we don't do that. Those kind of in-between steps that are so important to turn them from a lead into a customer. But we think just because they've taken out their credit card that they fall in there. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I, I loved that concept of them being a lead still when they subscribe. Well, ultimately, that first subscription is just your first transaction. And assuming that you're not a super high margin business, you're not making money on that first transaction. You'll be making money on the third or the fourth or the fifth billing cycle. And so to your point, it's incredibly important that you pay attention to customer retention beyond that first transaction. You know, if you think of it like a first date, and really you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, subscription as a business model is fundamentally different than transaction businesses because you are building a relationship with that customer over time. And that every time you bill them, really it's a recurring touch point with the customer that's a reminder that they're in a relationship with you as a company and you're in a relationship with them as a customer. And that has to be nurtured over time the same way any other relationship would have to be nurtured. You know, think of it like a first date. You know, the the highest probability of that first date not working out and leading to a second or third date is on that first date. So it's super important (laughs) that you get that first date, right? Because you're not going to get the second or third date if you screw up the first one. It's the same thing in business. You know, if buyer remorse is going to creep in and customers are going to churn, they're going to churn within the first 30, 60, 90 days. So what you're doing as a company following that first transaction ultimately is going to be the make or break for your business. And as customers become more comfortable with your business over time, they're more likely to stick around. Yeah. And we see that in the data. The highest churn is after the first month. Second month, it goes down a little bit. Third month, it gets less. Eventually, it gets to a point where it's very, very minutely, incrementally decreasing. But you're right. That's the point where you have to nurture them. I think, uh, and the other thing I I would add is, you know, there's this concept of continuous onboarding and Mm -hmm. and what, what woos the date in on the first date isn't what's going to keep her around on the 30th date, you know, and she might be impressed that you did something on the first date, but that's not going to work forever. And so it's the same thing with subscriptions. You know, and Amazon is a good example of this. Like when I signed up for Prime years ago, Prime free shipping was what got me. And then they added in Prime video storage or Prime photo storage and then Alexa, you know, Prime and then Prime movies and, you know, it just keeps adding And so every year you have to basically add more value to keep those customers. But a lot of brands don't think like that. They think that the value that they subscribed for is that's it. They'll be happy with it. And then they're surprised when their lifetime value isn't past six months because they're not continuously onboarding and continuously adding value. And it's so critical. Yeah. And one of the points I just want to highlight that you sort of alluded to earlier is that churn is not linear. So when you read yeah. about churn metrics online and you type in, say, what is the average churn rate for a mm-hmm. D2C business? You'll get like 
5% or 6% or 4% or something like that. That is the average. The way churn actually behaves is much different. So if you look at churn on a graph, it's accelerated in the first 30 days, especially, and then 60 days, 90 days. And over time, it slows down. And as you move out to the right on that graph, you see the curve sort of shrink and you're left with a percentage of your customers that kind of never leave, almost like yeah. an annuity. <laughs> the important thing is that you don't have hyper-accelerated churn. And if you could slow down churn, especially in that first you know, month one or month two, that separates your business from everybody else. And there's ways to do that with value. What are your thoughts, though, on just using pricing tactics, annual billing with heavy discounts, like you know, two months free when you subscribe annually? Are those some tactics you're a proponent of to get people through that first couple month period? You know, I don't have any best practices around pricing tactics because they vary so much across industries and across companies. I don't know what to say about that other than, you know, we experiment, we recommend our clients to experiment with pricing to see what works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, fair enough. And um, one of the things I'll, I'll say is a great example of there's a company called Charity Water. I can't remember mm-hmm. if I mentioned this yep. on a previous podcast. Started but I by the Tom's Shoes guy? or Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And actually, fun fact, his brother, Tom Shoes, his brother has a golf club subscription <laughs> business and mm-hmm. he uses our bold subscriptions. It's uh, you, you pay a certain amount a month and you, you can get a... I think it's called the Dollar Driver Club. So you're talking about Dollar Shave Club. He's got the Dollar Driver Club and you pay a certain amount a month and you can just swap out different drivers because I guess that's like the Achilles heel of every golfer is you buy a new driver every year. So what if you could just pay 30 bucks a month and have access to any driver you want kind of thing. So they're both entrepreneurs. Scott Harrison, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's Dollar Driver Club is the, it's kind of, I, you know, fall under, I guess, a rental slash subscription. Yep. And I know the lines are a bit blurred there. Mm-hmm. So one thing Charity Water does that I find super interesting is it's a subscription, but it's a donation. So you say you're going to contribute $50 a month or $30 a month or whatever it is. You go on their website, you take out your credit card, you make the purchase. And then on the thank you page, like, or the order confirmation page after you've already paid and you've already committed is this video from the founder and it's just embedded on the page and then it's kind of re-explains everything that Charity Water does and the wells that they build and how many people get fresh water because of the donations and everything that you just learned on the website. Like you just learned that. You just in your head said, Charity Water is a great company. I'm going to make a recurring donation. You've just subscribed to making the donation and then it's like he's selling it to you again. And I think there's a very important reason behind that is just because someone's made the purchase, you know, like, I guess this kind of goes back to the last point. You still have to continuously educate them. There's still a lead. They're not fully bought in. And the more that you can continually educate on, you know, the good that that money is doing in the world, the less likely people are to cancel their monthly donation that they're doing, like the more value. So, you know, I always thought actually Robbie Baxter, Robbie Kilman Baxter was on recently and she had a great way that she put this. She said, when someone subscribes to your product, there's a half-life of attention. The, the peak moment of excitement is the moment they click subscribe and pay. That's the peak moment of excitement and it kind of goes down from there. So from the time they place the order to the time they get the product, 
you can onboard them with videos, with content. You know, if it's a smoothie subscription or a wine subscription, educate them on like, here's the nutritional value that you're going to start feeling. Here's some case studies of people that have changed their lives with these smoothies or these vitamins or whatever it is, or, you know, for the six days until they get their first order, educate them on all the benefits. And it's by the time they get it, they're knowledgeable, they're armed when their friends ask them, oh, what is this subscription all about? They know everything about it. They know they're like a walking salesperson for your subscription. And they're going to also be less likely to churn because they see the perceived value has gone up as opposed to just ordering it, sitting there waiting and slowly, you know, the half-life of attention just goes down, 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 down until you get it. Yeah. And in my opinion, you know, customers are really insecure and buyer remorse Mm -hmm. is really sort of caused by that insecurity. Like, think about it. When you go out and purchase, you know, a new shirt or a new pair of jeans or a new suit, the peak insecurity is kind of like when you swipe your credit card, you bring that suit home for the first time and you try it on and you sort of stand in front of your wife or girlfriend or partner <laughs> or friend or whatever yeah. uh, and say like, your dog. you know, do you, do you like this? Like, how does this look? Did I make the right choice? You know, yeah. customers need to be reassured that they made the right choice. They need their confidence boosted, especially in that first week. So anything you as a company can do to reassure them that they made a good choice, that this was the right purchase, the higher likelihood that they're going to say, okay, great. Thank you for telling me I did make the right choice. Yes, that's right. I'm confident. I'm going to stick with this. (laughs) Yeah, you got to resell it to them. You nailed it. I want to shift into, actually, I've seen you, you post a few things on, on LinkedIn and other places about companies moving into the subscription space who maybe weren't traditionally a part of it. There's companies in airlines and food and restaurants and all kinds of different verticals that we don't traditionally think of as subscription. Of the companies that have kind of announced a new subscription membership lately, are there any ones that really excite you? I mean, like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought I'd subscribe to my treadmill or to my exercise bike. But these are things that now seem normal to us. But of the ones that have kind of come out recently, are there any that you're really excited about? And then any specific verticals in general that you are you're excited about to see moving into the subscription space? Well, the Panera Bread stuff is really fascinating to watch. You know, these all-you-can-drink coffee, beverage subscriptions in sort of a brick-and-mortar location for a flat monthly fee is super interesting. You know, I think the jury's out on whether or not these subscription models are standalone profitable for these companies, but I don't think that's Mm -hmm. the objective. I think the objective here, especially for a company like Panera Bread, is to offer something innovative that's going to capture a lot of media attention. Number one, okay, box checked. Number two, create really high perceived value for the customer. So, In the case of Panera, $10.99 for all you can drink coffee and beverages at all of their locations in the US. Pretty good value proposition, I would say. Mm -hmm. But three, you know, as a company, is this an innovative enough strategy to create more brand awareness for Panera and also drive average order value up or the average ticket up? Because you assume that if the actual subscription is a loss leader for the company, what is the customer going to purchase outside of their subscription once they're in a Panera Bread location? Assuming they Mm -hmm. pour that coffee cup, that's free of charge, fine. They grab a sandwich, a bagel, a muffin, whatever, and there's excess margin there. So I think it's interesting to watch these companies try and innovate around this model. 
and create value. And I don't necessarily think that these standalone subscriptions are profitable in each and every case. I think the jury is still out on that. And I can talk about travel too, if you want. I mean, if travel, you know, you mentioned the whole Alaska Airlines if that's helpful, we can talk about that use case. <laughs> I'm actually fascinated by all of them. There's hotel chains that are looking at offering mm-hmm. subscription. Like, I guess what it comes down to is it comes down to, I call this paid loyalty, paid membership versus loyalty in general. Like a lot of these restaurants and these travel and these hotels, like they probably all had loyalty programs. You know, every coffee club has buy five coffees, get your six one free and hotels they all have their different points programs. Every airline has their points program. But if you choose not to fly on a certain airline or not to buy coffee from a certain place, you just don't earn those points. It's not a huge loss. But one of the biggest psychological drivers of choice is if I subscribe to Starbucks for my coffee and now I choose to buy it somewhere else, I'm not just not earning my Starbucks points. I'm actually losing its sunk cost. It's money that I've spent and that I feel like if I have an Alaska airline subscription and now I choose to fly Delta, <laughs> I feel like in my head, I'm like, I'm losing money. I'm like, I have to use it versus if I just didn't earn the points with Alaska and now I'm getting Sky Miles instead of Alaska points, whatever they're called. So to me, that's a really interesting driver of decision. And I think the recurring revenue is important, but I think underneath it, when you get under the surface, it has a much stronger effect on a customer's purchase decision than just loyalty, you know, but this is still early. And I think that you're right. Like we're watching it play out in front of us. I could see this, uh, they're working really well or brands will have to adjust the pricing models. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on Alaska? I'd be curious. Yeah, I'll get to Alaska in one sec, but you bring up an important point that I've written about on LinkedIn and in the book. And I love to talk about, which is this idea of the death of points programs. And mm-hmm. We've been talking about this, frankly, for a long time. And while points programs were once ubiquitous, you know, air miles, CBS points, whatever, the next chapter of loyalty is going to look a lot more like Prime, where customers Mm -hmm. are opted in to a paid fee for VIP loyalty program. You know, free points programs, free rewards programs, they're very company centric, right? They rely heavily on breakage or lack of usage. They have, quote, perceived value, but no real value. And customers, frankly, don't understand how to use them. You know, they don't understand what the benefit thresholds are. They don't know how to redeem their points a lot of the time or where to redeem their points. There's just very poor understanding of how these programs really work, frankly. And so this shift to fee for VIP, if done right, is a lot more customer-centric. And you see kind of the opposite customer behavior play out with much deeper customer engagement way higher usage and real value. And it's a huge paradigm shift because you're moving from a world where loyalty points programs, free points programs benefited the company only, frankly, to a world where these programs really benefit the consumer and company as well for that matter, because the customer is invested in this program. So if you look at the numbers, the numbers back it up, right? So Amazon Prime Shoppers spend $1,400 a year on Amazon versus $700 for typical Amazon shoppers. Instacart Mm. Express, same sort of deal, $2,300 a year for typical or standard Instacart shoppers. Instacart Express customers, on the other hand, spend about twice that in a calendar year. There are all these other companies tinkering with the same type of loyalty model, restoration hardware, 
Bed Bath and Beyond, Alibaba, DoorDash, Roblox with Roblox Premium. I mean, there's so many of these use cases where you know companies understand that loyalty has moved from a world yeah. of sort of free points to paid, and it's a super powerful shift. There's a really interesting McKinsey has a report, and so on paid loyalty programs versus non-paid, the paid loyalty members are 43% more likely to buy weekly as compared to non-paid. They are 59% more likely to choose the brand over a competitor versus non-paid people who are just a member of loyalty points and 62% more likely to spend more on the brand than someone who's just collecting regular points. 100%. Yeah. It's just like the numbers are staggering. And I think, I don't know, for anyone listening, it doesn't even matter the vertical. Like if you sell clothing and there's no, actually Fabletics does a really good job of this. They have kind of a model where you pay, I think the men's program is I pay $50 a month, but I get a $75 shopping credit every month, but I pay $50 a month, but every month I get a $75 coupon that I can use. And so I'm not going to shop somewhere else. And like, unless I, cause I feel like I'm losing it. If I don't lose it or use it where points, there isn't that same psychological use it or lose it driver. Like you're exactly right. And it's not just the confusing. It's like half of the hotel points I have, I don't even know where my login is or what my nobody account knows. number is. So I, I mean, nobody, yeah, these, so. these programs are honestly, they're such bullshit. They're completely <laughs> valueless. The numbers back it up. I mean, if you look at the amount of points on these company balance sheets that are unused, it's staggering. And, you know, companies have to treat these points differently. They have to list them as risks or liabilities and disclosures to shareholders. It's a whole mess. These programs are seriously valueless. They benefit the company only and customers don't get value. To be honest, there are critics of Amazon Prime, certainly in, a, in other paid programs, but you can't question the value. I mean, I'm happy to pay $100 a year for Amazon Prime and I'm incentivized to shop on Amazon before I look at alternatives. I mean, that, that just makes perfect sense because I've got skin in the game. And I think that's an important principle that companies need to take away is that, you know, paid loyalty, you're, you're not charging the customer. Customers now have skin in the game and they're incentivized to shop with you at the same time. You now have a responsibility as a company to drive real value for the customer. Yeah, totally. You know, another thing I, I think paid loyalty does is it removes price sensitivity that loyalty points doesn't. So I find with Amazon Prime, and I literally did this the other day. My son wanted a new Lego, a Star Wars Lego. Just went on Amazon. I Googled TIE Fighter Lego. I don't know what it was. It was like $49. I ordered it. And then the next day I was at, I think it was Walmart. And I saw the same Lego for $29. And I was like, oh, geez, that's like half the price. I don't even think to shop around and compare prices. I'm a prime member. I get my free shipping. So I just, it removes that price sensitivity. And, you know, the same would probably be true for Fabletics. Like I, because you have the the money to spend there, you're probably not going to compare if a shirt's $5 cheaper somewhere else. So it, it actually, as a brand, might even allow you to become more of a premium and it removes that price sensitivity. And this is anecdotally speaking. I don't have data on this, but I noticed that for myself. I'm less likely to compare prices because of the paid loyalty program that I'm a member of. Yeah, and this move by, you know, going back to the Alaska Airlines Use case for a moment. You know, the move by the airline is definitely indicative of what you're saying, Jay, of the company's desire to create some sort of consumer lock in where members, and I'm putting the members in quotes to this program, look to the company they're paying into before searching across alternatives. So when they look to book their next flight, they know they're an Alaska Airlines subscriber. 
They're paying into that program. Why not look at Alaska first before searching alternatives? Yeah, exactly. So then of the companies, we're seeing some entrance into the subscription world. Are there companies or verticals that have not yet moved in that you would like to see and what might be stopping them? I think that's a really good question. It's hard to pinpoint specific companies. I don't want to pick anybody specifically, but, you know, home services, you know, that sector, I think has a lot more innovation ahead of itself. You know, these manage my home type offerings, concierge type offerings to, you know, Mm -hmm. fix appliances, take care of lawns, shovel snow, et cetera. Almost like insurance for your home, but tackling Mm -hmm. the service side of it, I think has real upside. Also, artists, musicians, creators, they've all been challenged, right? Especially during the pandemic. I think that whole industry, the arts, if you will, they are forced to innovate. And there's real potential to build deep communities with their fans for a fee. So I think that's something to watch. And also, you know, the pet space is super interesting too. Look, this is a high margin industry. Everybody knows BarkBox. They're super familiar with that use case. BarkBox has around 82% of of market share. And the Mm -hmm. other 18% is really comprised of nobodies. So I think, you know, the pet food space is super interesting. The TAM, the total addressable market's huge. Still a ton of upside. People spend a lot of money on pets. You factor in this move toward organic (laughs) pet food products, which are high margin, less price sensitivity there. So I think there's going to be a lot more competition in the pet space. So that'll be interesting to watch as well. Yeah, I'll tell you one that I, I think a lot about, and they must be thinking about it, is Apple on the hardware side, not the software side. Yep. But I have a Mac, I have an Apple Watch, I have an iPhone, I have an iPad, AirPods. What else do I have? I don't know. Every every Apple device. And I, I would pay, if you did the math on like, you know, you replace your phone every few years and you replace your watch every whatever. Some people might replace it every year. Some people might replace it every three years. But you if you figured out what you spent in the last 10 years and divide it by the number of months, it might work out to a hundred bucks a month or 200 bucks a month or 300, whatever. You can have different plans where I want the best MacBook, the the pro phone, the best watch. And it could even be a blend between subscription and half subscription, half rental. So I have my MacBook, I get it for two years. At the end, I'm qualified to drop it back at an Apple store and get a new one an upgraded version. But then because the value of Apple to me is the ecosystem, like I'm not one that says like iPhones are great or Androids are great. I don't care. But the value of an iPhone when you have an Apple Watch and a an Mac and an iPad and AirPods all together, that's a great experience. But they don't price it that way. They price them all, everything individually. So the pricing doesn't align with the value. To me, the value is the ecosystem, mm-hmm. but I buy them all individually. So I don't know. That's one that I... I think in the next year, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe I'll quote this <laughs> this episode, but we, we see an announcement like Apple moves to a subscription Apple ecosystem model. I don't know. Do you think we'll see that? I think that's totally possible. And I think a lot of these high ticket product companies are tinkering with subscription as a way to make these purchases more affordable for customers. And this is on the back mm-hmm. of the entire buy now, pay later movement and the success of mm-hmm. companies like Affirm and Afterpay and Klarna. You know, these are companies that are, are figuring out how to amortize the cost of these hard goods to make that initial sticker shock feel less shocking, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. So, you know, there's a rumor that Peloton is doing the same thing with their bike, trying to tinker with the pricing model to allow customers to subscribe to the hardware for one fee. So you would get 
the bike plus access to you know Peloton classes for $100 a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you canceled your subscription, you cancel your access, obviously, and you must return the bike unless you've paid for the bike in full or stuck around long enough that that subscription fee is taken care of that initial hard cost. Or they have a buyout fee. Yeah. Or, yeah. So I think there's real viability here. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and if you think about it, the fact that these buy now, pay later, these are Klarna was valued at $46 billion recently with their last investment. Mm-hmm. And then add all the others in there, like the value that has been created in that space, a brand potentially can absorb some of that. Like a Peloton can absorb some of that value that a firm is their main partner for buy now, pay later. But if Peloton had a service like that or subscription offering like that, I, you wouldn't even need a firm. I would just subscribe. And, and then I'm going directly because Peloton's paying a firm. The brands are the ones that eat the cost on the buy now, pay later. It's free to the customer, mm-hmm. you know, but the pro to the brand is they potentially get more conversion. And anyways, so they're willing to pay. But if brands implemented a subscription model, they could remove that need for that third party to come in and essentially layer in the multiple charges. Like a brand could just do that themselves and then eat all that value (laughs) instead of these buy now, pay later solutions, which are growing like crazy for a reason. Yeah. You know what? You make me think of something else that I just want to bring up before I forget it. But there's two industries that I think are super immature still with real upside. You asked the question about industries before I mentioned a few. Here are a couple more. One is toys. Okay. As a parent, Mm. Besides KiwiCo or KiwiCrate, I don't yep, know. I subscribe to it. <laughs> I don't know a lot of other toy companies that are getting this right. Yet, as a parent juggling, you know, three young kids at home and, and having time constraints and extracurricular commitments, et cetera, I would love to have a company sort of manage the whole toy situation in my house. You know, send me toys when they're a certain age, take them away when they are slightly older, send me more appropriate toys for their age for that next cycle and keep that cycle going. I'd happily pay into that. I am sick of paying fixed costs, one-time transactions to buy toys that my kids love to play with for a couple months and then don't look at <laughs> the rest of their of their life. And they get shoved into a corner and they take up space in our house. Yeah, I agree 100%. Oh, well, there's a brand that just launched and I'm trying to, I'm done searching right now that they do exactly this. They're using our subscription software and it's a toy subscription. You can pick 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, whatever you want. And you get these different toy packages and then your kids play with them and then you can return them or send them back. And then they send you new ones because I have toys piled up that I bought. My kids played with once and then they're done with it. But someone else could, they would love to play with it. I'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember the name of the the company, but it's exactly that. They're brand new and anything with kids that they outgrow. Yes. This model. So I think you know, anything for baby, anything for toddlers, young kids, not just toys, even with music, right? Think about giving your kids the joy of music and giving them access to learning an instrument, having access to a teacher using that instrument at home, there's huge potential there. I have three kids that are very interested in music. I played music as a kid. I love music. I would love to have a company let me try out drums or piano or guitar or bass or whatever, give my kids access to lessons, not have to commit to purchasing those instruments in full Mm -hmm. because I don't Mm -hmm. know if my kids are going to stick around or, or want to learn that instrument 
you know, beyond the first few lessons. Like if I'm just trying to experiment and see which instruments my kids resonate with, why not have a subscription service tackle that? Send me the instrument. I'm happy to pay that rental or subscription fee. Let them try it out month to month. And when they're done with it, we send it back. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And you know what? We'll end the show and then there's going to be more that come to mind. It's uh, ah, dang, I can't find the name of that company. It's going to come to me later and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. I want to ask you before we run out of time, Mm -hmm. important metrics for subscription brands is one I've been thinking a lot about lately, you know, that you can call it your North Star metric or some companies have these stats up on their TV. Actually, I just had uh, the co-founder of Peel Insights on yesterday. The show hasn't gone out yet. It might be out by the time ours goes out. She had some really interesting thoughts on what our important metrics. And I think like what you said earlier, you know, churn is a weird one to track because it's an average and it's not maybe necessarily indicative of health. What are, you know, when you're working with a brand and digging into the health of their subscription business and are they growing? Are they doing good? Are they doing bad? What are some really important metrics that you look at? Okay. So some are going to be obvious, some not so obvious. So the important ones, lifetime value, customer acquisition cost, what's your lifetime value to customer acquisition cost ratio or LTV to CAC. Your churn Mm -hmm. rates are super important. And I think what we find is that companies don't necessarily understand how to analyze churn and they don't understand the difference between voluntary and involuntary churn. So Mm. voluntary churn is a customer service problem. Involuntary churn is a credit card decline problem. Both, by the way, can contribute to high churn. So a customer who's voluntarily churning is calling you and saying, I want to cancel my subscription. Please cancel me. Involuntary churn means they don't necessarily want to cancel. They might not be unhappy. They could be very happy. But you go to process their credit card in any given month and it declines. And you're wondering why your churn is, is sky high. It's because you know credit card declines can be contributing up to 40% of your total churn rate. And mm-hmm. there are, I'm sure you know this, Jay, but there are tools, credit card decline or decline salvage type tools out there that you can plug in to help you understand how to track and manage and optimize and fix involuntary churn. It's important to yeah. retry those cards after they decline. You know, success is somewhere between 5x and 7x. So it's a 5 times or seven times you got to retry that card before it goes through if it declines on that on that first transaction. And there's yeah. lots of reasons at the uh, card issuing bank level as to why a credit card might decline. We don't have to get into that conversation. It's very detailed and it comes down to type of credit card, the credit of the customer, the risk of that customer, the size of the transaction, the price point. There's so many factors. But the point is involuntary churn and voluntary churn are two different things and they need to be managed and tracked differently. The other metric that I think is super important is chargebacks and chargeback ratios. Companies that get into chargeback trouble know what I'm talking about. Companies that don't get into chargeback trouble might not necessarily know what I'm talking about. But chargebacks are very different from refunds, right? Refunds, that is a cost of doing business, right? Where you send out a product, customer's not happy with it, they want to refund it. So they call you or they come back to the point of sale, they send the product back you process their refund. That's the cost of doing business. Ultimately, you want to keep that number low, obviously. Chargebacks are very different because chargebacks are a black eye on your business and they affect your merchant processing. And you are not in control as a business of your merchant accounts, despite what you might think. You have signed a merchant agreement that gives all the power to Stripe or to Chase Payments or whoever you use. And they can pull the rug from underneath you at any given time, turn off your processing, 
And if you have no processing, you have no business because you can't process credit cards. That is a problem. So chargebacks are when customers don't call you for a refund or don't come to the store uh, requesting a refund. Instead, they look at their visa statement and they take a look at that charge. They pretend like they don't recognize it or maybe they don't recognize it because your billing descriptors are not accurate or up to date or they have something like, you know, 8910 US Inc. LLC instead of the name of your brand because you didn't update your billing descriptor when you signed your merchant agreement. And so the customer doesn't recognize the charge and they call Visa and they say, hi, Visa, I don't recognize this charge. I want to dispute it. That is a chargeback because the card issuing bank, in this case, Visa, in conjunction with Chase or whatever the bank is of of record, file a dispute. That's a $35 charge, I think, to your business. Plus that goes on record. And Visa MasterCard have very strict regulations in terms of how many chargebacks are acceptable for a business. North of 1% of your total transaction volume is considered high risk. And once you're in the high risk category, you are potentially in that realm of maybe losing your merchant processing or having funds being held in reserve. So not a good thing if your chargebacks run a little too hot. Yeah. Or you'll never get good processing rates because you're considered high risk. And this unfortunately happens a lot in the subscription space because someone has a bad experience with one subscription brand. They go and they try to cancel their subscription order, but that brand is bad and doesn't have a cancel button. And this is unfortunately what some brands do because they think it helps churn. They make the customers call in. So that customer has a bad experience. And then they just assume that with other subscription brands, and if I'm subscribed to, you know, you just mentioned KiwiCo, KiwiCo is great. But if I had a bad experience with one company, I might just say, ah, screw it. I'm just going to log on to my Visa account and, and click deny this charge or dispute this charge and cancel it. Because if there's less friction for me to do that with the bank than there is with the company, it's the path of least resistance. And so make it easy for your customers to cancel if they need to. They're going to one way or another. Like, I think you nailed it. And uh, not all is lost too. Like if you have a good experience canceling, we had Patrick Campbell on recently and like actually you talked earlier about different types of soft and hard cancels. Even if they're an intentional cancel, Mm -hmm. that customer might be, that's their way of putting it on pause or maybe something has come up in their life where they can't afford it. Or maybe they're, they just no longer need it for some reason because someone gifted them a whole bunch of tea and they don't need your tea subscription for six months. So the worst thing you can do is make a bad experience for them to cancel because now you're just guaranteeing they aren't going to resubscribe when they do need their tea. But he's found that over, thir- I think it's like 36% of people who cancel a subscription with proper engagement, they reactivate them later on if it's a good experience canceling it and then they're still marketed to like six months later, like, hey, if you want to give your subscription another shot, we thought we'd give you a month free. We don't know what canceled, but if it was something in your life and if you've moved on, that's fine. But here's a month free on on us. It was like 38% of people restarted their subscription. So all is not lost if the experience is good. Yeah, and I think as a business steward, for those that are that are running a business and asking themselves what they should do, do they make it super difficult for a customer to cancel. That's one extreme versus give all the controls to the customer and make it super easy and cancel buttons everywhere. There's oftentimes, <laughs> you know, there's a happy medium. And yeah, as a company, you have the opportunity to save the sale. 
So if a customer is wanting to cancel and you want to drive them to your customer service center and speak to an agent and potentially retain them, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think that that experience needs to be seamless. It needs to be easy. It needs to be not at all confusing to reach you. And so long as you could do that, I think you're okay. You know, companies get into trouble when customers find it hard to reach these companies. There's no toll-free number. They can't speak to anyone. They don't know where to find, you know, the pause button or, or cancel button within their account settings on the website. Your billing descriptor isn't accurate, so they don't even recognize the charge. Like, there's lots of ways to get into chargeback trouble. But if you can, you know, understand where your risk is and fix those areas of risk as a merchant, I think you're in good shape. Starting with your billing descriptor, by the way, and most, we see this all the time, so I'm bringing it up again. Most clients we work with do not know what their billing descriptor is. They don't know how their charge is showing up on a customer's credit card statement. And it's important to go back to your processor and ask them for a screenshot of your billing descriptor and include a toll-free number in that billing descriptor if you don't have it, because you want the customer to call you, not Visa. When I look at my credit card statement, I'm blown away how many I don't recognize. But then when I Google it and I find out what it is, I'm like, oh yeah, I know who it is, but I don't recognize it. And I think too, I've seen this so many times, companies launch a membership program or a subscription box and it's branded a certain membership or it's called like, let's use KiwiCo. Like KiwiCo is maybe the name of the company. This might not be the best example, but what I subscribe to is KiwiCrate and they have the KiwiCrate boxes and that's what I know. So that's what I should see. And that's connected. So I would probably figure that one out. But we've seen a lot where the company is one name, but then their membership program, they come up with some weird club name, like it's called like the Kid Club. But the company is called something completely else. But I'm buying the Kid Club. I'm subscribed to the Kid Club. I'm a member of the Kid Club. But the company is a different name. And then I don't recognize it on my credit card statement at all. So it might even be worth having a separate merchant account if the branding is that strong. Speaking of Kid Club, by the way, I found out the name of that company. It's called Sharesies.co. Sharesies. Like share, S-I-E-S, Sharesies.co. And it's, uh, that's their title, The Never Ending Toy Box. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, we're just about out of time here. I want to ask you one last question and then you can tell all our listeners where to find you. So hang on there for all our listeners. But your talk at SubSummit is all around building a billion dollar subscription business. What's Obviously, there's a lot that goes into building a billion dollar subscription business. But what's like one, one or two nuggets you can share from that, that like the best of the best brands that hit that billion dollar mark or whatever, like some substantial mark, what are they doing right? That so aren't? important to note, I think at this point that the format of this talk is actually an interview between me and Sunny Wu. Ah, well, so you don't even know the secrets. So I don't know the secrets. I'm going to be pulling the <laughs> secrets out of Sunny. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Stage. Okay. So you'll have, All right. you'll have okay. to come to Sub Summit. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be recorded and shared. So you'll have to look out for that interview. Once you know out. what? Let's leave this as a call to action then. We're going to get this episode out right away. And I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm sure you probably have one too. I, we've got one because we're a partner as well, but we've got a discount for Sub Summit tickets. You know, tickets are, I don't know what they normally are, like 1900 I think we have them. We can share a link that listeners can get them for, it's around $400. So go to Sub Summit, listen to Adam's talk and you'll get that answer. That's a better answer to this than giving anything away <laughs> on the show. <laughs> if someone wants to engage with you, Adam, or learn more, what social platforms are you active on and where can people find you? So proudly speaking, I'm not on a lot of social media on purpose. <laughs> I spend most of my time on LinkedIn, so I would encourage folks to connect with me there. You won't find me anywhere else. 
And for more on Scriberbase, we're at scriberbase.com. And of course, the book, wherever folks get their book, whether it's uh, in their favorite bookstore or on Amazon, it's the subscription boom. Yes. And it's a fantastic book. Actually, we were a couple of things we chatted about were from it and we should have dove into it more, but I, I highly recommend it. It's one of the ones that there's a few that I have on my shelf that I actually recommend to a lot of our brands and yours is one of them. So for those listening in the subscription space, check his book. I think it's, where is it available? Just on Amazon or? It's available anywhere, you know, Barnes and Noble, Indigo, if you're in Canada, it is on Amazon. Amazon's the most popular place to go. Probably the easiest. Awesome. Especially if you're in their paid loyalty program, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not that I need to line Bezos' pockets any further. Yeah, no kidding. There you go. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. We'll have to do this again sometime. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, Jay. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of Own Your Commerce. If what you've heard has helped you in any way, I'd love it if you'd leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's a new podcast and reviews really help spread the word. And if you know someone you think that might benefit from this podcast, share it with a friend. If you'd like to learn more about Bold, visit boldcommerce.com. You can view all our past episodes. And if you have a story you'd like to tell, we'd love to have you on the show. You can apply to be a guest or suggest a guest on our website as well. That's all for now. And we'll see you next week. 